Uh, These school holidays, lots of people go camping. And I know from experience there's all sorts of things that can go wrong. It can start with the packing. Maybe you focus on all the little bits and pieces, the food, the esky, the chairs, the surfboards. But when you arrive, you realise you've forgotten the tent or maybe your sleeping bag. Rookie error. Well, you remember the tent and the sleeping bag. You remember the tent, say, but the tent's brand new and you forget to check that you've got all the bits. Or you don't pack the instructions. And so you spend half the first day trying to put the tent up while everyone else in the camping area sits back, relaxes and laughs at you. Rookie error. Or maybe you remember the tent and you know how to put it up, but then when you arrive, well, the water looks so inviting. And so you decide to hit the beach first and put the tent up later. But then the storm clouds roll in and then you're putting your tent up in the rain and everything gets saturated. Once again, it's a rookie error. They're all mistakes that come from not putting first things first, from focusing on minor things rather than major things. And it can have disastrous consequences. That's the point the prophet Haggai is making here in Haggai chapter 1. Focusing on minor things instead of major things can have disastrous consequences. The year is 520 BC. We've jumped forward 60 odd years from the time of Obadiah that we looked at last week. Uh, When Jerusalem finally fell in 576, the Jews were taken off into exile in Babylon. 538, 40 years later, Cyrus, the king of Persia, he conquered Babylon and his foreign policy was to allow the Jews to return home to Jerusalem. The book of Ezra tells the story of what happened there. They arrived back in Jerusalem, they began to rebuild the temple. Two years later, 536, they'd finished the foundations. There was a great celebration. They built an altar, they sacrificed and celebrated. But for a variety of reasons, work ground to a halt. Uh, It ground to a halt until 520, 16 years later, with no work being done on the temple. 16 years of making do with a dirt floor on sandstone foundation blocks. 16 years of getting distracted, of focusing on minor things instead of what was most important. And at that point Haggai enters the scene and he's got a message from God about putting first things first. So verses 2, 2 to 4. This is what the, this is what the Lord Almighty says, These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. You don't want to rush these things, they say. You know, you want to make sure you plan, you you don't want to move too quickly, you just want to be sure. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? In other words, there has been plenty of building going on in Jerusalem but not much building on the temple. Their priorities are back to front. And it seems as if Haggai has a criticism for the type of houses they were building as well. Uh, They're called panelled houses. Same word used in 1 Kings to describe what Solomon did when he built his palace. He panelled it with cedar. So it seems like the Jews were not just putting up simple shelters for themselves and then got to work on the temple. It seems like they're building McMansions 
complete with luxury fittings, in-ground pool and tennis court. And God has had enough of coming second. And so in verse 5 he warns the people to give careful thought to their ways. Give careful thought to your ways. Take a good hard look at yourself, he says. It's the first of four times that that phrase is used. Twice here in chapter 1, twice in chapter 2. Give careful thought to your ways. In particular, look back. How have things turned out in the last 18 years? Uh, Since you arrived back in Babylon, is it the rich paradise you expected it would be? Is the land flowing with milk and honey like you'd hoped? See there in verse 6? Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes that are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. In other words, you've arrived back into the promised land and you've expected fruitfulness and yet you've only experienced frustration. Why? God says, put two and two together, see what you come up with. And just in case they come up with five instead of four, in verse 9, Haggai makes it clear. Down in verse 9 he says, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, the earth its crops, I call for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labours of your hands. God caused the drought. You expected blessing, but it looks more like a curse. It shouldn't really surprise them, because that's exactly what God had promised. Back when Moses explained the covenant to the people of Israel, he said, Obey God, he'll bless you, but if you disobey him, Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. You'll sow seed in the field, but you'll harvest little. The locusts will devour it. You'll plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes, because worms will eat them. You'll have olive trees throughout your country but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. Disobey me, this is what will happen and that's just the way it turned out. But what makes it even worse, if you think about it, is that this has all happened after the exile. The exile was supposed to be the ultimate covenant curse for their disobedience. Only 70 years before, only two generations, And yet this is the same sins of disobedience that are causing these curses. They still haven't learned their lesson. And so what's to be done? Uh, Well, verse 7, the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. It's the same phrase as verse 5, but this time, give careful thought to your ways looking forward. You've considered your former ways Now think about how you're going to act into the future. Verse 8. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. In other words, get out of your garden and get out into the hills. Stop trimming your roses and cut down the timber instead. 
move out of your comfort zones, start putting me first. Well, there's the command. How are the people going to respond? If you know anything about the history of Old Testament prophets, at this point you are not holding out too much hope that there'll be a positive response. But we're surprised, aren't we? Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. It begins with the leaders. The political leaders, Zerubbabel, the religious leader, Joshua, and then the rest of the exiles as well join with them because God's speaking to them. They obeyed the Lord, they feared him. And then down in verse 14, we read it only took them three weeks to get organised and they begin building the temple. They're finally putting first things first. They're considering their ways. They're giving God his rightful place. Their priorities, comforts and interests come second. God comes first. And the book of Ezra tells us that they finished uh, building the temple within four years of that time, 516 BC. Now, in lots of ways, that's the end of the story. Uh, But what's the application for us as Christians? One sermon I read online was from a church who were having a building program. And so the sermon application was that people should put God first and commit to giving generously over the next number of years so that they could build their new building. They should put God first so that they could have new offices, a new nursery and a new gymnasium. Now, that may be one application for Haggai, but can I suggest it's far from the most important one? And I think it makes the mistake of not realising what time we live in. Uh, A bit like the Amish, uh, who lived the same way they did in the 1800s. No electricity, cars, tractors, phones, appliances, power tools or computers. They're pretending that technology has not arrived. And when Christians today think that all God is interested in is building a new temple, can I suggest they're pretending that Jesus has never come? You see, building a temple building is the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't talk about buildings. In Acts, groups of Christians met in homes, in the temple courtyard, in outside down by the river, they met in a public hall. We're not commanded to build buildings. In the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people in a tent, later in the temple, but then Jesus came and that changed everything about where God would dwell and where his attention was found. Jesus came in human form and was God dwelling among us. And so he supersedes, he replaces the temple God lives in us in a person, not in a building. But it gets even better than that. If it possibly could get better than Jesus, it does. When Jesus went back to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in his people, to dwell in all of us individually all over the world and then to dwell in us as a people, as a church. And so it's God's people who are the new house for God to live in. We are his temple. 
We are the temple that God is building. And so it's no surprise to see that God is at work building that temple, growing us bigger, growing us stronger. Ephesians 2.19 describes what God is doing like this. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's the application. That's the sermon application for Haggai chapter 1. That's the building project we need to be focusing on. That's what God is interested in building, far more than whether we have a new kitchen or more seats or a new roof. God is interested in building a stronger, bigger, more united, more godly, more loving temple of his people, indwelt by his spirit. That should be our goal as well. Ephesians chapter 3 goes on to describe how God's big plan for the universe is revealed in the church. It may surprise you as you look around us this morning that God's big plan for the whole universe is focused on us, the church. Uh, Chapter 3, 10 and 11 of Ephesians says, God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. The church is God's advertising signboard for his eternal plans. That's what he's building. We need to make that our top priority, building the temple of his spirit until it fills the earth and until every knee bows before Jesus. That's putting first things first. That's one application. But Haggai is saying more to us than just build the church, build the building. He's saying put God first in everything. Give him what he deserves in everything. And that's a big task, isn't it? To put God first in everything. Our God is a big, big God who demands not just Sunday mornings, not just a small group of people, not just one set of relationships, but who demands everything. Jesus hit the bullseye when an expert of the law asked him what the greatest commandment was and he answered in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with everything. This is the first and greatest commandment. To love God, of course, is much more than just how we feel. It's far more than a worship experience, a a feeling of friendliness towards a group of people. That's not what it means to love God with everything. To love God with everything is practical and down to earth. It affects every decision we make, not just the religious ones. To love God with everything is to love him with our time and our energy and our emotions. To love God with everything is to love him with our preferences, our inclinations, our intellect, 
our education. To love God with everything is to love him with our ambition, our our competitiveness. It's to love him with our holidays and our hobbies and our health. To love God with everything is to love him with our hospitality and our homes and our jobs. To love him in our driving habits and our viewing habits and our spending habits. Every decision we make is an opportunity to put God first, to love him with everything. That's a big vision, isn't it? But we serve a big God and he's worth it and he demands it and he deserves it. I wonder though if this has all left you feeling a little overwhelmed, feeling that that bar is just too high for you to clear, that the task is too impossible and you're just not up to it and you feel like a failure. Well, let me finish then by pointing you to three encouragements from God himself here in Haggai chapter 1. And because they're in Haggai chapter 1, it makes me wonder whether the Jews themselves weren't feeling those same things that maybe you're feeling, uh, feeling overwhelmed at the prospect of building the temple. The first encouragement's there in verse 13. The people resolve to obey God and God's response is, I love this, I am with you. I'm with you. I may not have built the temple yet, but God's not limited to a building. He he won't just arrive once the building's finished, he's with them now as they build it. I am with you. In lots of ways it's a great summary of the Bible. I am with you. The Bible begins in a garden where God walks with Adam and Eve. The Bible finishes with God in the middle of the New Jerusalem with his people again. And in between, from Genesis to Revelation, it's a story of how creatures wander and rebel and run away and yet God chases them and wins them back and wants to dwell with them. From Genesis to Revelation, the story gets replayed Uh, replayed of God with Noah in the ark, God with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, God with his people in Egypt, God with his people as they march through the desert, with them in the tabernacle, with them in the pillar of fire, with them in the temple in the promised land. He's with them when they're in exile in Babylon. And as Jesus comes, he's with them in the form of a human. And he's with us now by his Holy Spirit, the Spirit who is a foretaste of that great and complete and thorough and eternal witness. God is with us as we live for him and put him first. That's the first encouragement. Second encouragement is that God works with you. That's there in verse 14. The people respond in faith, but it's not just going to be their energy and motivation. Verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. God worked through the faithful determination of the people. And he stirred up 
their spirits. This is a partnership. And it's the same with us. As we work for God, it's a partnership between our energy, our talents, our motivation and God's spirit. Our success will never come if we do it apart from him. It's a little like sailing. A sailor can get everything organised. A sailor can set the sails, tie off the sheets, steer the right course, the rudders, everything's perfect, but he won't go anywhere without the wind. He needs the wind and his hard work. Paul encourages the Philippians in chapter 2 verse 12 when he says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. We are to work hard, but it's also God who works. How does he work? Well, he works in our will. He actually changes our desire so we want to please him. And he also works in our acts. He actually empowers the things that we do so they're effective and they succeed and they last. Work out your salvation because God is at work in you. And as Paul thinks about his own ministry of preaching the gospel, he describes it as a partnership. Colossians 1.29, he says, To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. See how the two go together? You can't just sit back and say, oh, I'll just let God do it. I'll sit here and just chill. No, work hard and God will work through you. 1 Corinthians 15.10 he says But by the grace of God I am what I am. His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God that was with me. Paul works hard, God empowers his hard work. And so that's how we can approach uh, putting God first in everything, loving him with everything. Respond with faith and energy, whatever we have, and then look to God to supply the rest. Well, that's the second encouragement. The third encouragement is there in verse 8. You might have even missed this one yourself. God commands the people to bring down timber from the hills and then he says, build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. Yes, we're sinful. Yes, we fail. And yet God is saying here that when we faithfully obey him, when we're strengthened and stirred up by his spirit, God is actually pleased with the work that we do. He takes pleasure in the work of your hands. He's honoured by the work of your hands. He takes pleasure in your efforts to raise your kids, even when you make mistakes, even when you lose patience. He takes pleasure in your efforts to be morally pure even when your eyes occasionally wander. He takes pleasure in your efforts to speak up for Jesus at work even if you sometimes say the wrong thing or say nothing. He's pleased. He takes pleasure in your work. 
Romans 12.1, Paul urges us, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. God reveals his mercies to us in Jesus and then as we offer our lives back to him in gratitude, he finds pleasure in the work that we do. That should motivate us when we feel discouraged and inadequate to put him first and to love him with everything. What a privilege, what a joy, what a calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for these words from Haggai. We thank you for the reminder that you deserve to be put first in everything. Uh, We thank you for the commitment you've made to building your church uh, through your Son and through your Spirit. Might we have that same commitment uh, so that your purposes and your wisdom might be seen in the heavenly realms for the honour and glory of Jesus. Amen.